time to weep, and a time to sing. This last week, we had both. We had to put our sweet little one-year-old kitty to sleep because of the illness that she had. And we had the birth of baby Leo, grandchild number nine in Turkey. A time to weep and a time to sing. That's what we read at our call to worship from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, including there a time to weep. Psalm 137, part of our sermon text this morning, is indeed a psalm of weeping. But the previous psalm, Psalm 136, which we examined six weeks ago, tells us 26 times that God's steadfast love endures forever. And we learned six weeks ago that that phrase implies God always acts lovingly, always over time, including the sweeping arc of history, and in every particular instance. Everywhere, over every place, in managing the universe as a whole, and in every village, every crosshole, every crossroads, every home. Over all of his people, across centuries, across ethnicities, He's forming his kingdom, his bride, and for each of us as an individual, his steadfast love endures forever, every individual in Jesus. So if God's every act is loving, why then is there a time to weep? Why should his people ever cry? Well, those who compiled the book of Psalms arranged them in the order in which we have them to clarify the truths of each psalm. We learn more accurately what a particular psalm means by looking at the psalms around it. And we've seen that again and again and again as we've made our way to this point in the book of Psalms. And thus, Psalm 137, perhaps the most difficult of all the Psalms to understand, is placed right after Psalm 136 with that repeated refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. And Psalm 138, a Psalm in which David sings God's praises. Yet in Psalm 137, the people are told to sing and refuse to do so. It seems to imply that it would be wrong for them to sing in that circumstance. And the psalmist also asks God to exercise a terrible judgment 
on those who have harmed them. So the question arises, are there times that are so terrible we should not sing praise to God? Well, remember the setting of Psalm 137. In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem after a lengthy siege. They destroyed even the temple built 400 years previously by Solomon. The siege was horrible. The many months where there was nothing to eat, leading even to cannibalism in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Lamentations chapter 2. And yet the final destruction of the city was even worse with the slaughter of huge numbers, including children, the raping of many, the burning of the great majority of the city. And while the Babylonians were the instigators, they were the invading power, citizens of other surrounding nations, including the Edomites, spurred the attackers on and participated in some of the horrors. Terrible times indeed. So Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 137, the people have experienced such horror. So let's then read 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentos mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And Babylon becomes in Scripture the picture of all worldly opposition to God. So that what we read, that passage we read from Revelation 19, that's talking about the great prostitute is Babylon the great. Well, then Psalm 138, we've already read it in its entirety. Let me just remind you of a few phrases. Verse 1, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Think of the contrast. Think of the intent that God has in putting this Psalm immediately after Psalm 137. 
Verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And from verses 7 and 8, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. So before Psalm 137, your steadfast love endures forever. After Psalm 137, your steadfast love endures forever. That's no accident. So let's learn the lessons of these Psalms under four headings. First of all, why not sing in Babylon? First part of 137. Second, why the terrible call for judgment? Those last three verses of 137. Why should we always sing? That's Psalm 138. There'll be four parts of that, as you can see on the screen. And then in conclusion, steadfast love, sorrow, and singing Jesus in these songs. So why not sing in Babylon? Verse 1, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. The destruction of Jerusalem takes place about 900 years after the exodus from Egypt. And it appears at this time as if the Assyrians and the Babylonians have accomplished what Pharaoh could not. It appears that they have destroyed the nation of Israel. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and that kingdom never returned. 136 years later, the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, and by human reckoning, it seems as if this kingdom, too, will never come back. So the Jewish exiles in Babylon remember Zion, remember Jerusalem, they remember the temple, they remember the feast, they remember the glories of David's reign, of Solomon's reign, of Jehoshaphat's reign, of Hezekiah's reign. And they also remember the rebellion of the people of God, of their people. Worshiping other gods, looking to other kingdoms instead of to God for help, violating his law time and again. And they also remember the prophet that God sent proclaiming that God was going to judge them if they did not repent and turn. And now it has happened. God has judged his people. So they weep. They weep over their own sin. They weep over the sin of the people of Israel. They weep over the horrors of the judgment. And in the middle of their weeping, their captors, their tormentors say, hey, Sing us one of those old songs, those old songs exalting the God who could not protect you from us. 
You're never going to regain your kingdom. You're never going to go back. Look how strong and powerful we are. Look what we did to you. But hey, be happy. Entertain us with your particular culture. And then fit into this dominant culture. But in verse 4, the people refuse to comply with that requirement. Why? Well, verses 5 and 6 help us understand why. Verse 5, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth and thus be unable to sing. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, to sing the way that captors desire would be to forget Jerusalem. To forget God's promises. His promise that he would bless all the families of the nations through the descendant of Abraham. To forget God's plan to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. To forget the promised descendant of David, a Jew. Which they know of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The people are not saying, we will never sing. God has forsaken us. That's not what they're saying. In verse 2, you notice, they don't trample on their liars and destroy them. They hang them up. It's in the moment they won't sing in response to that requirement of the tormentor. They are saying, our singing must be praise to our covenant-keeping God. Our singing can only be worship. We can only sing as a testament to God's glory as manifested through his chosen people, through his coming king, when that is our highest joy. If our God and his promises are not our highest joy, may my hand forget how to play a liar. May I not be able to sing at all. As Isaac Watts wrote, oh, may we lose these useless tongues when they forget to pray. The tormentors are not asking for a song that praises Yahweh, proclaiming that Yahweh will bring his people back, will send his promised Messiah, will judge and destroy these very oppressors, will bring to repentance other oppressors for the glory of his name. No. When the tormentors require songs from a captive people, they are mocking the God of those people. Mockery disguised as entertainment. The people remember God. They know they must remember God and his promises. That's why they do not sing in response to their tormentor's command. Well, then second heading, why the terrible call for judgment in these last three verses? We'll learn more about singing in Psalm 138 
But first, we must deal with these very difficult verses. After recalling in verse 7 that the Edomites were spurring on those conquerors to even greater horrors, the psalmist writes, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Many are tempted to dismiss these verses saying something like, you know, that, that's just Old Testament vindictiveness. The New Testament tells us that's a wrong attitude. Those people just didn't know enough to know it was a wrong attitude. But remember, the Apostle Paul tells us, referring to the Old Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So how can we profit from these last two verses of Psalm 137? Note first that the author is depending on God's word when he makes these statements in Psalm 137. God is a God of justice, as we read in our core seminar this morning. He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Apart from God's mercy on us, we reap what we sow. So as they say, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done. They are calling for a just punishment. Furthermore, Babylon is indeed doomed to be destroyed, as verse 8 says. God has said that in prior prophecies. Habakkuk had pronounced five woes against the Babylonians and against all those who do not live by faith about 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And indeed, the psalmist here echoes part of the book of Isaiah which you probably are not familiar with. In Isaiah's oracle against Babylon in chapter 13, written more than a century before the destruction of Jerusalem, Isaiah writes this, and the psalmist had this very much in mind when he wrote Psalm 137. Speaking of Babylon, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children and Babylon the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So the psalmist is echoing these words of Isaiah, these words of prophecy. So friends, horrible acts merit Horrible 
punishment. And God will bring about that punishment on everyone who is guilty of horrible acts. The only way to avoid such punishment is to cast yourself on the mercy of the Savior he provides, Jesus Christ. And then that penalty is paid by Jesus at the cross. That's justice. It is right to long for justice. But there's still a puzzle here in these verses, isn't there? The psalmist says those who implement this horrible punishment are blessed. You know, it's one thing to rejoice in God implementing perfect justice, but to say, blessed are those who bash babies' heads against the rock? Really? Elsewhere in Scripture, there's nothing similar to these statements of blessing in Psalm 137, 8 and 9. Here's a representative sample of some of the uses of the same Hebrew word translated blessed here. And this will give you a, a flavor of how the word is used elsewhere. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Psalm 34, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the Lord. Psalm 84, blessed are those whose strength is in you. The first three verses of Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Proverbs 3, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. That doesn't sound like Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, does it? So the normal usage of this word is happy, fulfilled, are those who delight in God, who depend on him, who rejoice to walk in his ways, who gain wisdom through him. That's the way that we see the word used in the Old Testament. But one of the uses of blessed, I think, gives us a hint at what the psalmist is getting at. Isaiah 30, verse 18. In this chapter, God pronounces judgment on the kingdom of Judah because of their rebellion against him. And guess who implements that justice? Babylon. God says in Isaiah 30, verse 17, speaking of the Jews, a thousand of you shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain. You're going to be left desolate. You're not going to have anything left. But then verse 18, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, 
And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. That destruction is not the end. For the Lord is a God of justice. And it's speaking of the justice on the Jews. The just punishment that is there manifested through the destruction of their kingdom. The Lord is a God of justice. But here's our word. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And Isaiah then goes on to prophesy that they will weep no more, that God will be gracious to their city, verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Okay? He's going to give you the bread of adversity. Blessed are those who wait for him. What's the initial situation of these people? They're blessed, but they don't receive anything positive at the moment, right? The promise is the future. The blessing is yet to come. That's the blessing that these exiles in Babylon in Psalm 137 must hold on to. Trusting in God's promises, trusting in his character, trusting in his justice. The fulfillment of that blessing in, Psalm, in, in Isaiah chapter 30, the fulfillment of that blessing is yet future. In the short term, and understand, the short term could be many lifetimes. In the short term, there is trouble and sorrow, but in the fullness of time, God will bless his people. So we have short-term trouble, future blessing, and it's right to speak to those people who are about to face that short-term trouble, blessed are you who wait for him. It's similar to the idea we find in Hebrews 11 again and again and again. Faith in God's future grace leads to commendation for those who are facing trials and sufferings in this life and don't see the fulfillment of those promises in this life. Okay, so that's the way blessed is used in Isaiah 30. Now back to 137. The blessedness pronounced in Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9 can be seen as the mirror image of the blessedness of Isaiah 30. In Isaiah, we have short-term trouble or sorrow followed by future blessing. What we have in Psalm 137 is the mirror image. Short-term success, fulfillment. Indeed, short-term being used by God to accomplish God's purpose of punishing his people, but long-term punishment, destruction. The victory of those paying back Babylon is according to God's plan. In that sense, the Medes are blessed. They conquer, they have joy, they have happiness. But they, like the Babylonians, will suffer long-term judgment unless they repent. So our question then under this heading, why the terrible call for judgment? The Babylonians deserve it. God sees to it that they get it. They too had been blessed in the same sense. 
They temporarily achieve their objectives. They're the most powerful empire in the world for a few decades, but they are overthrown. Those who overthrow them are blessed. And then those who overthrow the Medes are blessed in this same temporary sense. Scripture is full of examples of such people who receive such similar temporary blessings. They're used by God. They accomplish a purpose of his, but then they face judgment. We see that in kings of Israel like Jeroboam, Jehu, Baasha, or even in the New Testament of Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod. But the only ones who are permanently blessed are those who receive Yahweh's steadfast love that endures forever. Those who wait for Yahweh, trust in him, and have faith in him. Okay. Let's move to Psalm 138. Why should we always sing? We can go more quickly here because we've already seen a significant part of the answer. The problem in 137, the reason they refuse to sing is they don't want to entertain their gloating oppressors and in the process forget God and his promises. Since Yahweh's steadfast love endures forever, it is always right to sing in worship, whatever our circumstances. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are a people sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And Psalm 138 then gives us four reasons to be always singing, always rejoicing. Verses 1 and 2, we sing because of who God is. Note in these verses, there's nothing in these verses dependent on what has happened recently to the people. It's all because of who God is. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Don't get hung up up by the word gods in verse 1. It's used of angels, heavenly beings, even powerful humans at some points in the Old Testament. So the psalmist praises God, sings to God for his steadfast love, for his faithfulness, for his name, for his character. God exalts his name and his word above all else. His name is who he is, his character. His word is how he reveals that character to his people. What he says verbally, what is written in God's word and what he reveals of himself in the living word in Jesus Christ himself. So thus, it is always right to sing praise to God, to praise his character. In our deepest sorrow, God still loves us, still follows us, still superintends all that happens. And so that. Sentence from Isaiah, blessed are all those who wait for him in the midst of sorrow. Second reason 
We should always sing verse 3 because he answers our prayer. So now in verse 3, David does say there's something particular that has happened to him that he sings praise to God about. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. We've said that sometimes we must wait months, years, decades, even centuries to see the fulfillment of God's plan, to see justice done. But he answers in other ways. He continually answers in other ways to encourage us in our waiting. And so when he does that, remember, he may do that through something you observe in nature. He may do that through a word spoken to you by another person. He may do that by giving you a sense of his presence in the midst of challenging difficulties. He may do that by a simple answer to prayer about something trivial, But he's always doing that, giving us little tokens of his love that we do well to notice and remember and then sing songs of thanksgiving for those tokens of his love. Even if the great majority of his blessings that we long for are still future. So we praise him, sing to him because of his unchanging character, We sing praises to him because he answers our prayers. And then verses four to six, we sing praises because even our former enemies will sing his praise. Following Psalm 137, these verses are especially profound. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth and they the kings of the earth, shall sing of the ways of the Lord of Yahweh, for great is the glory of the Lord. Great is the glory of Yahweh. For though Yahweh is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Even those kings will sing. These former enemies, these former oppressors, these who are trying to mock the people of God will be humbled. His glory will be manifested in their humiliation and the weak, the seemingly insignificant have God's regard. Isaiah again, chapter two, verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That day is coming. God will exalt his name through bringing terrible, just judgment on powerful oppressors and, and, and by bringing to repentance some of those same powerful oppressors. Praise him. And these formerly oppressive people will join those that they oppressed in worshiping the one true God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And his death on the cross will have paid the penalty for the horrors of their oppression. That too is just. Finally, fourthly, always sing 
because God fulfills his loving purposes for his people. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. You've already noted the repetition here at the end of Psalm 138 of your steadfast love endures forever. David highlights here that that steadfast love is individual as well as corporate. God will fulfill his purpose for his people, his church, his kingdom, and he will fulfill his purpose for Taylor for Daniel, for Julie, for Beth. We may well face troubles and sorrows, and we all need to wait for that final fulfillment of his promises. But in Christ, we are the work of his hands. And he who began that good work will bring it to completion. He will avenge every evil perpetrated against us, and he will overcome whatever barriers we face, whether they are internal barriers or external ones, so that we can fulfill his purposes for us. We can have such confidence, and thus in that confidence, we can wait eagerly, expectantly, for him to be at work. Well, finally then, in conclusion, steadfast love, sorrow, and singing, Jesus in these psalms. Step back now, and let's look at the, the big picture explicitly bringing Jesus into that. Weeping. Jesus wept. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the daughters. He, he wept over Jerusalem when he looked forward to the judgment coming upon that city. Weeping thus can be consistent with confidence in God's purposes, confidence in God's plan, confidence in his steadfast love. There are many times where it is right to weep, even over the death of a cat. It is right to do so, as in Psalm 137. The people were right to weep in Babylon over what had happened, even though God was sovereign, even though that was fulfillment of God's prophecy. Weep over pain, over sorrow, over sin, your own sin, sin of God's people, the sin which is so ever-present in this fallen world. Jesus wept, and so must we. Second, Jesus faced sorrow with singing, and so should we. 
because of him. Even when we face sorrow as great as the sorrows recounted in Psalm 137. When did Jesus sing? There's actually only, I'm sure Jesus sang many, many times, but there's only one place in the New Testament, one occasion in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly said to sing. You know when that was? After the Lord's Supper, on their way to Gethsemane. The night of his betrayal, right when he was going to say, prophesy from Zechariah, they'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. All of you are going to desert me. You're all going to leave me on my own. Right before he was going to pray in an agony of blood coming out of his pores, oh, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. That's when Jesus is said to have sung. It is most sorrowful moment. Jesus sang praise to God. And so as Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, that future blessing, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, singing praise to God in his most difficult moment. That's what we must do also. Third, like the author of Psalm 137, Jesus loves justice. As we read from Luke chapter 13, it is Jesus who says of people killed by a tower falling on them that they were not worse sinners than those around them that were not killed, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God is a God of justice. Jesus delights in justice. And so as we read from Revelation 19, there's this praise of God's justice over what Babylon always signified, the world opposition to God. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, praising God for his justice. So trust in God's justice. Don't take justice into your own hands. Trust in God's justice. Love God's justice. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus implements at the cross. Fourth, Jesus loves mercy. Indeed, Jesus is the only way to obtain God's mercy. The cross, as, as we read in some great hymns, at the cross, God's justice and mercy kiss each other. So Jesus loves justice. And he satisfies the necessary justice by going to the cross himself. And thus he sings praise to God. That's part of the joy set before him. 
that his cross purchased the redemption of God's people and thus fulfilled God's plans, God's purposes. God's steadfast love is thereby shown through Jesus' death on the cross. Finally, fifthly, God fulfilled his purposes in Jesus, and he fulfills his purposes for all those in Jesus. Caiaphas thought he had derailed Jesus. Pilate thought he had derailed Jesus. Judas thought he had derailed Jesus, and in the end, he killed himself because of that. But God was always working to bring about his perfect plan. God fulfilled his purposes in Jesus, and he fulfills his purposes for each one of us and for his people as a whole. So, friends, you too can be confident that God will fulfill his purposes for you. You too can be confident that his steadfast love will follow you all the days of your life. You too can be confident that whatever you have done, you are not excluded from his grace. You are not excluded from his mercy that he offers through Jesus. You too can be confident that in Jesus, you are the work of his hands and he will never leave you nor forsake you. So weep over the fallenness of this world. Weep over your own sin, but rejoice always. Sing praise always. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. The lamb of God has paid the penalty and he will reign forever and ever. Always, always, always sing to his name. Let's pray together.